Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Here from sunny Florida. Um, beautiful day here today. Uh, a little cold and windy for Florida. Uh, but tonight I have a special guest who will discuss a number of issues with us. And his name is Al Gals. And Al Galves is a psychotherapist who lives in Las Cruces, Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, He is the past executive director of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, uh, a longtime member of Mind Freedom International, and we will start our discussion in a moment with that, with Mind Freedom. He's the author of Harness, your dark side, mastering jealousy, rage, frustration, and other negative emotions. And he is a user of psychotherapy for 53 years. And since he's only 55 years old, that really is amazing. <laughs> Good evening, Al. Hi. Hi, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? All right. Okay. Uh, I'm so doing tell fine. me, I'm doing well. what is mind freedom? Okay. Mind Freedom is is an organization. It's a nonprofit organization. It was started by David Oakes and Janet Foner in about 1988. So David Oakes, David Oakes uh, grows up in 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 Chicago working class neighborhood, right? He grows up okay. in a Lithuanian a Lithuanian neighborhood. I don't know how they got Oakes out of that, but you know how that goes. So, uh, and he grows up there, and he, and he he gets admitted to Harvard, so he goes to Harvard. Now, you know, that's going to be a daunting prospect for most people, jumping from a, a working-class neighborhood in Chicago to Harvard. It's right. a big deal. So he has a breakdown in his freshman year. He breaks down, and he gets uh, put into the hospital, and they inject him with Haldol. And he has a reaction, and he says, no more of that. You ain't putting that shit into me anymore. No, no. And so they throw him into solitary confinement or into a padded room, you know. And uh, he says, pretty much decides at that point, he says, okay. He says, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight this the rest of my life. So he eventually graduates magna cum laude from Harvard, right? How long was he in the hospital? released him uh you know i don't know exactly how long he was in for I, he had a number of uh, 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 stays in the hospital larry two or three during his stay at harvard he mm-hmm. eventually, gra- eventually graduates and while he was there in his junior and senior years he got involved in the mental health mental health liberation movement i don't know if you remember mental health liberation it was the first uh, movement by survivors there was a guy named howie the harp who was a famous member of Mental Health Liberation. And there was a chapter in, in New York, in Boston, in, in Berkeley. I know Sally Zinman, who you might know, Ted Chabazinski. Those people were members of Mental Health Liberation. Now, let, let me, let me, wait a second. Let me make something clear, because I think listeners may be confused. When you say psychiatric survivor, you're not talking about people who survived so-called mental illness. You're talking about people who believe they had to survive psychiatry and the treatment they got. That's correct. That's exactly correct. Okay, so we're so for instance, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good clarification because, for instance, I, I had a breakdown when I was 25 years old, and I got a lot of help over the years from, from psychotherapy, but I'm not considered a survivor. In order to be a survivor, you have had to be involuntarily committed, forcibly treated against your will I in a hospital or somewhere. That's what they consider to be a survivor. That was true of David, true of Janet Foner, true of everybody I'll mention. But So David begins to get trained in community organization, and he becomes a community organizer. He did a lot of work in, on environmental issues. And in 1988, he starts Mind Freedom International. The first name was Support Coalition, um, and I, I think what he, he wanted to do, what he wanted to do, was support uh, this movement 
to to fight against the human rights violations um, in mental health, to fight against mm-hmm. the fact that you you can you can force a person to be injected with drugs that are extremely harmful that will kill them if they keep on taking them. They'll die 25 years younger than other people. They'll get Parkinson's disease. They'll they'll lose their cognitive ability. Their their brain will shrink. Against their will, you can inject them with that kind of a substance. So the main function, I mean, the main impetus behind uh, uh, Mind Freedom was we're going to stop this uh, this violation of human rights that no one even knows about hardly, and and few people are really fighting against. So he and Janet Phone start the organization. He becomes the executive director. And who is Janet Phone? Huh? What you want to know? You know, want to know about Janet? I don't know if you know Janet. Uh, I don't know Janet. Okay, Janet's a woman who lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, who was forcibly committed to a hospital, uh, injected okay. with the drugs, forced to take the drugs. She survived. She is a world leader in reevaluate reevaluation counseling. I don't know if you know what reevaluation counseling is. Nope. It's called RC. You know about it. Co-counseling. Harvey, right. uh, whatever his name was. Harvey, um, anyway, the guy that started it. She's world a world leader in it. She goes around the world training in it. So here's another woman who, who has done wonderful things with her life. Uh, reevaluation counseling helped her. You know, it helped her basically have some cathartic experiences, express her emotions, learn that she could be okay with who she was that she wasn't sick, that she was just going through some hard times, that she had been traumatized. And so she's big in reevaluation counseling. So so Mind Freedom gets going. And what Mind Freedom starts doing is, um, first of all, demonstrating. They're organizing demonstrations at the American Psychiatric Association annual conference. They've done this eight or nine times at the annual conference. Get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, get in front of the psychiatrist with bullhorns, with signs, with uh, with uh, songs, uh, people talking, uh, basically uh, sending the message, hey, uh, you guys are hurting people. Uh, you guys are forcing people into treatment that hurts them. Uh, you know, uh, this has got to stop, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they also... Uh, he created a um, what's called Mind Freedom, the Mind Freedom Shield. Okay, Mind Freedom Shield is a solidarity network of people who agree that they will help each other if they get involuntarily committed. So you sign up, you you become a member of the Shield, and if you get involuntarily committed, you notify the Shield, and and the members start calling the governor, the the head of the hospital. Um, the psychiatrist. Now, now here's the problem, Larry. You know this. That's really not going to do any good. What you really need is lawyers. You need good lawyers, right? right? And and, yeah, and my you have to start it on a legal basis. Exactly. So you know about Jim because, Gottstein, who also is a survivor, by sure. the way. Jim Gottstein and the Law Project for Psychiatric Psychiatric Rights. So uh, Mind Freedom does that also. They also do Mad Pride events because part of the deal is, hey, look. These states of being that we're talking about, uh, these behaviors that lead people to be diagnosed, you know, they're the way people are coping with their lives. They're the way people are expressing themselves. In some cases, they're the way people are are, are finding a way to live, terrified. You know, uh, Larry, I don't know if you know Bert Caron. Bert Caron would say, look, here's the deal. Everyone diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, any psychosis, is terrified. They're terrified about the world, and they have good reason to be terrified. They don't want to have yes. anything to do with human beings, and they have good reason not to want to have anything to do with human beings. This is what's going on, and they're finding a way to survive. That's what they're doing. It's actually a move towards healing. In other so words, they would put on mad their adaptation. That's right, exactly. It's an wow. adaptation to life. Exactly. It's an individual exactly different patient, and that's all it is. That's all it is. It's an adaptation. Okay. It's a way of surviving in a in a toxic world, uh, the best they can. Also, and we can talk about how, if you want to help a person, how do you do it? So they have mad pride events where they go to a, a park and uh, 
and they would uh you know have clowns and uh and 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 uh, do demonstrations and and uh david would what he did, he he would um, have a bunch of rubber chickens and he would he would be screening for normality he would say i'm going to see if i can find somebody who's normal and he'd go up to people and say let me see if you're normal let me see can you quack like a duck can you make big sounds and, and he said oh you're not normal no he said I've been out here trying to find someone who's normal, and I haven't been able to find anybody. You do that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, right. So then, now in 2003, Mind Freedom did a very dramatic thing. A guy named Mickey Weinberg, who was a member of Mind Freedom, who's not a survivor, but who was a community organizer, and who basically was organizing people in board and care homes in Los Angeles, and he saw how bad the drugs were and how bad people were treated. And he was organizing them like a labor organizer. So Mickey, he, he saw, this is, this is horrible. This, these people being forced to be treated, uh, this is ridiculous. So he came up with the idea of having a hunger strike. Right? We're going to have a hunger strike. It's 2003. And he gets six other people who agree and make the statement, we are not going to take solid food until the American Psychiatric Association, the Surgeon General of the United States, and the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill give us scientific evidence, present us with evidence that mental illnesses, quote-unquote, are brain disorders, chemical imbalances, genetic problems, that psychiatric drugs are not harmful, that psychiatric drugs correct chemical imbalances, that... um, uh, you know that mental illnesses are 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 caused by chemical imbalances, et cetera, et cetera. We want evidence. Okay, we're not going to eat until we get the evidence. Well, the National Alliance uh, for the Mentally Ill sent in the email saying, "Why don't you guys do something worthwhile instead of this stupidity?" Uh, the Surgeon General didn't respond. The American Psychiatric Association sent a textbook saying, "Here's the evidence." And we had a scientific panel made up of all PhDs and, and MDs, David Cohen, Peter Bregan, Jonathan Leo, David Healy, Mary Boyle, jo- Joanna Moncrief, uh, 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 Lauren Mosier. We had a scientific panel, just debunked it, totally debunked it. actually used parts of the textbook to debunk these these beliefs. Uh-huh. So... So after about 25 days, basically, uh, the, the hunger striker said, "Well, you know, no one did it. No one sent the scientific evidence in. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna start taking food." So, uh, Larry, the reason the reason Mickey did it was he wanted for the media. He wanted to get the media interested in this. He said, "We're gonna do something dramatic, so the media will will cover this." And did the they? reason we're doing it is no. Hardly at all. They didn't. I know. That doesn't surprise me. Right? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't do it. It was a story in the New York Times, a little story. Uh, it was something in NPR. Some. It didn't happen. This is the way Mickey, uh, this is what he wanted to do. He, he wanted uh, the general public to begin to see how empty the scientific foundation of psychiatry was, how there was no scientific foundation beneath it. There was no evidence that it was a totally a, a, a what would you call it a, a house of cards, right? And he wanted he wanted the media to to expose this. Well, it didn't happen. So Mickey actually had other ideas, and he actually he's doing something right now along the same lines. So Mind Freedom did that. Uh, here's another example of what David did um, about ten years ago. The kind of thing David would do. Okay, about ten twelve years ago. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, there was a guy named Ray Sanford. Ray Sanford is being electroshocked once a week against his will. Against his will. He's under a court order. The psychiatrist has ordered electroshock. Every Wednesday, he's he's in a group home. Every Wednesday, the hospital goes, picks him up, takes him into the hospital and shocks him, puts 100 whatever it is volts into his brain, induces a grand mal seizure against his right. will. Yeah, this is going on. He, he says, no, no, I don't want, please, please don't. 
Oh no, it's a psychiatrist. It's an order we have. Uh, so David finds out about it, and he goes out to Minneapolis. And I, actually, I was with him. He starts getting meetings, holding meetings. He goes to the legislature. He starts talking to the legislators. He goes to the guardian. Guy has a guardian. He says, what's going on here? This guy doesn't want this. And he raises hell, basically, enough hell, so that finally the guardian agrees to find a different psychiatrist who won't order that. And so we get him off. We get Ray Sanford off. So uh, uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing Mind Freedom will do. Um, and the other thing, I'll just tell you one more thing. In recent years, what Mind Freedom is doing is, is holding a bunch of conferences, promoting and advocating, advocating for alternative ways of helping people who are going through hard times. So I'll just go down the list, Larry. Sure. You know about some of these. But, but here, Soteria House. Uh, anybody who's listening to this thing, if you want to know how to help a person who is going through a psychotic break, especially an early psychotic break, Google Soteria, S-O-T-E-R-I-A, and you'll find out about the Soteria House, which operated in the San Francisco Bay Area between 1971 and 1983. There's one in Burlington, Vermont. the name of the psychiatrist started that? Lauren Mosier. Yeah, Lauren Mosier. Lauren Mosier. Yeah. Lauren Mosier. He started it, and it worked. There's a good study that showed that it worked well. He was drummed out of the uh, the National Institute for Mental Health. They, sure. They, they, they threw him out of the National Institute for Mental Health because that's what, even though it worked, even though that treatment worked, they didn't want to do it because it wasn't going in the direction they wanted to go, which was becoming laboratory scientists and using the medical model and using drugs. And, of course, that's all they do now. Right. So anyway, so, so Terrier. We tell people about Soteria. We tell people about open dialogue, an approach that was developed in Finland, basically based on a family therapy model where they get everybody in this person's family right right away. As soon as there's any kind of uh, any kind of evidence of psychosis, they get together people who care about this person, friends, family, siblings, coaches, boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, mentors, teachers. They meet every day or every other day for two weeks. They talk about what's happened. They they create an environment of, of tolerance of ambiguity and openness. And let's see what, let's talk about this. Well, they report an 80% full recovery from first break, Larry. So open right. dialogue, which is beginning to happen no in the United States now. Uh, crisis respite homes. Um, intentional peer support. Hearing voices. Hearing Voices Groups, you may know about Hearing Voices Groups. Now in the United States, there's a movement creating Hearing Voices Groups where people who hear voices meet with each other, they learn from each other, they share their experience, and and they learn how to manage the voices. They learn how to engage with the voices, how to manage them. It's not pathologized. Uh, the RAP program, Wellness Recovery and Action Program, and Withdrawal from Psychiatric Drugs. So, in recent years, Mind Freedom has been promoting these alternatives. If someone asks us, they say, well, if you don't like the drugs, what do you like? Okay, here, Soteria, Open Dialogue, uh, Wellness Recovery and Action Program, Hearing Voices Groups, Crisis Respite, uh, Withdrawal from Drugs, you know. So that's, a, some, that's what Mind Freedom has been doing um, right. in recent years. Now, I want to say one more thing. Sure. Basically, uh, David Oakes, had a very a horrible accident about five years ago, which left him a paraplegic. He's still oh, wow. very active. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. David David is a paraplegic now, but he's still extremely active. He has a consulting firm called Achu, the Achu Consulting Firm, and he's still doing things. Uh, but when he got hurt and, and no longer was executive director, Mind Freedom fell into hard times financially and essentially has right. limped along. But we just got two fifty thousand donations, Larry, from anonymous donor. We got a hundred thousand dollars in donations, and we've hired a guy named Ron Bassman, who's a psychiatric survivor. Okay, who's a psychologist and a psychiatric survivor, a terrific guy. He's written books, Ronald Bassman. Okay. He's 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 now the executive director of Mind Freedom, and Mind Freedom is alive and well, and. Um, and uh, I'll just mention that the president is another psychiatric survivor, Celia Brown, African-American woman 
who all was involuntarily committed, forcibly treated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Schizophrenia has recovered is a tremendous force uh, for against drugging, against psychiatry. And she's the president of Mind Freedom. Yeah. Right. So that's Mind Freedom, basically. Mm -hmm. Great story. It's a great story. And it really is a hopeful one. Yeah. uh, And people... It is. And, and if people, by the here, way, though, uh, let me just say the website. If people want to go to Mind Freedom website, and it's being de- it's being developed right now, redeveloped because we've fallen into hard times. But if you want to uh, go to the website, www.mindfreedom.org. Okay, okay. that's it. www.mindfreedom.org. .org. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Anybody who wants to yeah. uh, uh, take a look. And take a look. Uh, get yeah. involved. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. By the way, get I wanted to talk too, yeah. about hearing voices. <laughs> Fascinating thing to me. Um, all of us, our consciousness is basically dialogue. We talk to ourselves. We have dialogues with other people. But we know that the voices are not coming from outside. We experience them internally. Right. Really good question is why are people having these dialogues and not having it external, internal, but external? Because I think that's what it is. It's a dialogue. Right. Um, right. I have a theory. I mean, if you look at, at okay. uh, I'm big Piaget. Right. If you look at little children about two years old, three years old, they talk to their dolls. But the evidence is the dolls talk back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Something happens with some individuals who remain in that kind of state in this kind of relationship. And it doesn't have to be the same for the same reasons. Um, I mean, this is theoretical. But right. a lot of the people that I've worked with uh, over the years have dialogues with God. And it's God that talks to them. Mm-hmm. Many come from cultures where it's expected that God will talk to you. Right. And it's interesting that in a country where 97% of Americans say they believe in God, if somebody says God spoke to me, that they're schizophrenic, that they're crazy. Prove that yeah. God didn't speak to them. But yeah. many of the so, people uh, I work with, there was a woman I work with who, um, uh, whose grandmother beat her up because she didn't, wasn't uh, holy enough. She wasn't, uh, didn't have the faith for God to speak to her. And then when she came here and was under tremendous duress and God spoke to her, she was locked up and she was treated. Okay? Right. Um, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah so well, that, so, uh, let me tell you how, let me tell you how, how Hearing Voices Movement started. Because it has, go ahead. It, it, it's a follow-up to what you just said. Okay, so it was started in Denmark, and there's a psychiatrist in Denmark. His name is Marius Rome, R O M M E, right? Mm-hmm. And he has a patient who is quote unquote a schizophrenic, and she says to him one day, she says, "You know, doctor," she says, "I don't get it. Uh, how come you and and people like you?" Go to church and talk to God, and that's not a sickness. But when I talk to voices or have voices, you hear from God. I hear my voice. How come mine's a sickness? <laughs> and and so this guy Rome says, "Holy, that's really a, that's a very good question. That's a very good question, and isn't it? That's a great question." And he he gets it. And he and that woman, together with another woman named Sandra Eschner, Sandra Escher, looking into this, and they start a hearing voices group. And then it gets into the United Kingdom, and it gets big. So there's there's a Hearing Voices Network UK, and you can you can Google it, Hearing Voices Network. It's quite a large organization. There are lots of hearing voices groups in the United Kingdom. And you know, now, this is fascinating. You know, it raises the issue, how many millions of people in the world 
might actually hear voices or have the, because to me, they're a dialogue. And I'll tell you right. one more case in it, because it was really very interesting. Um, but yeah. uh, uh, how many millions of people, quote unquote, hear voices? In other words, they're talking right. and there's a discussion taking place that should take place according to societal norms internally that somehow mm-hmm. gets externalized. Right. How many million? Exactly. Oh, really yeah. raises an interesting question. Oh, One exactly. In fact, I, the hearing, hearing voices group will tell you that two-thirds of voice hearers never get diagnosed because they don't tell right, anybody. Right, because I didn't. They're right. smart. I had a woman uh, I worked with for 10 years at uh, Flushing Hospital where I, I worked for 25 years in the mental health clinic. And the first time I started working with her, she said she hears voices. I said, there are no voices. And she got up, and as she left the room, she said to me, you know, the voices say, you're not real. (laughs) (laughs) But over the years, it was really great. I mean, she was enraged at me. She came back. And over the years, we never talked about it, except sometimes the voices got very loud and bothered her. And usually it was times of stress, right? And one day I said to her, do the voices sound like they're coming from anywhere? Well, she said, sometimes I feel it could be like a radio. I said, can you get your hands on the knob and turn the voices down? And she did. Mm-hmm. So the voices were always there, especially in times of stress. But she was able to literally to control the volume. Yeah, that's yeah. great, Larry. That was a great that was a great. Tell me that's a do. neurological problem. But here's the thing. In August, I would go on vacation. I saw her for 10 years, by the way. August, yeah, I'd go yeah. on vacation. When I got back, I had to call the hospital, Creedmoor Hospital in Queens, get her released. The first time she went, I said, what happened? She says, I got lonely. I turned the voices up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. No, no. I, I, I learned this. about. I, I got to know a woman diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, very well. You know, I knew her for five years when I was in Colorado. One day we were sitting in session, and she says to me, Al, you look tired. I said, yeah, you know, uh, you know, India, I used to call her India. Yeah, well, she, she wanted me to call her India. I said, you know, I, I, I am tired. She says, you know, Al, you don't talk to the moon enough. And I said, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I think maybe I'd feel better if I talked to the moon. So what I got from that was that since they're very isolated, you know, people diagnosed with schizophrenia tend to be very, very isolated. One of the functions of the voices is to make life interesting. Yes. Uh, by the way, Two's Company. Two's Company, right. <laughs> how, did, how, did, how did, by the way, again, the experimental stuff. Um, you remember the studies on uh, uh, isolate, what was, what was his name? where he would put people in sensory deprivation. Yeah, I, I don't know the, who was doing that, but, but they put him, I know what you mean, they put him in a chamber. In, 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 a chamber, in a chamber. Earphones on, covered their eyes, and covered up their exposed skin. And they paid, the, these were mostly students, healthy students. And they would pay them $50 a day to do this. Within two days, most of these people had to get out. But a tremendous mm-hmm. number of them began to hear voices. Right? Ah, interesting. Case, what did the prophets who heard God do? Oh, yeah. They went into the what desert about alone. Smith? Huh? Yeah. Yes. And they starved themselves in the desert. And under those conditions, all of a sudden, God started to talk to them. Yeah. Right. So, so right. this is a, a, a psychological phenomena. There's no exactly. evidence again. It's Discussing that this is a disease, right? But it scares yeah. it scares the crap out of people in a culture yeah. that is is works like ours. You, 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 yeah, you can't have that. A culture that's way over rational has much has way overvalued the rational faculty and undervalued yeah. emotions and undervalued the body. So let me Absolutely. tell you a little bit. I'll just tell you. I'll tell you a guy named Ron Coleman. A guy named Ron Coleman. Uh, Google him. Uh, YouTube. Larry, do this. Go to YouTube sometime and put in Ron Coleman. And, okay. And you'll hear, you see some videos. Ron Coleman heard voices, still hears voices. Uh, and he goes around the world talking about this. He is probably the, the, the number one 
uh, promoter and uh, a cheerleader for the Hearing Voices groups, right? So he, he here's what happens to Coleman. Coleman is abused by a priest, right? As a, as a kid, as an eight, nine, ten year old, is abused, sexually abused by a priest in Ireland. Uh, he, he he falls in love with a, with a woman, and he gets married at sixteen, and she dies at seventeen. She dies a year later. So he started hearing voices, and he also had a very difficult early life. Okay, his father beat the shit out of him regularly. Uh, this guy had. You call it the early life from hell. So he's hearing these voices. And as he got into the hearing voices movement and went to groups and began to be able to engage with his voices and wonder about what they were there for, what they were, who they were, what are they doing here, what's the meaning of them, et cetera, et cetera, he comes to see that the, one of his voices was the priest who was telling him it was his fault. The voice is saying, right. it was your fault this happened. It was your fault. You're the one. You, you made it happen. And one of the voices is his wife who died saying, come be with me, Ronnie. Come be with me. Right. Uh, so, and then he had a, he had voice from a, from a social worker who, who actually helped him. Anyway, uh, he, he would say, you know, as soon as I knew what these voices were, they went away. Some of them. He still has voices. I heard another woman say, because uh, she heard voices that were very abusive to her, you know, very attacking and, and, and saying scareful, scary things and, and putting her down, you know. And she said, I, I think what the voices were, they were telling me things that I wasn't willing to admit to myself. A great were, insight. Yeah. That's a, that's a great and, insight. And I, yeah. So, and, and one of the things that, uh, I think the voices are is there are a way of avoiding responsibility. If the voices are telling you something that you think is wrong, or that you wouldn't you couldn't abide, then you can avoid responsibility. It's not me. It's the voices, uh-huh. right? So we can we can think about all kinds of explanations for what are these things doing in people's lives. But the wonderful thing about the Hearing Voices Group a movement is that no pathology, no clinics, no clinician, no notes, no nothing. We're just here Good for them. getting together. Uh, pardon me? Good for them. Yeah. And it, it, I have with us one in Las Cruces. I started one here. Um, anyway, so that's the Hearing Voices, yeah. Hearing Voices group. This is really yeah. fascinating stuff. It really is. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, let me yeah, say one, is... one more thing. You, you may know this. You may know this. And this is an important this is an important learning. I, I had I, I told you about the the woman who I got to know quite well, right? Yeah. Um, when she needed to be grounded and lucid, Larry, she was. If she was getting applying for welfare, or if she was talking to a policeman, she was totally grounded and lucid. Right. My name is so and so. I was born in so. Which and means such. that there's a kind of. Unconscious voluntary, voluntary, voluntary aspect to this. Yes, yes. It, it, it's something it's that the individual. Yeah, go ahead. Just keep going because yeah, I think you're onto it. Yeah. Yeah. No, but in other words, we're we're talking about a whole variety of of uh, possible reasons for this that are psychological and very human. Exactly, and makes because sense. These in some are way. active devices. Yeah, you know, uh, and as sense. I say it, you know, I get excited about it because did you, did you, uh, I now have to may I may have to know do some research and do another chapter in the book I'm writing. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, let me give you the name of another guy you may not know about. who's was a terrific guy, a guy named John Weir Perry. John, John what? Weir. John Weir. His middle name is Weir. He used it. Uh, John. His middle name is W E I R. The last oh, name is Perry. 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 John Weir Perry. He wrote about okay. four books. He wrote four books. Spent a lot of time with pre- people diagnosed with schizophrenia in the 1950s. He spent right. a lot of time with them. Got to really understand them. And he was a Jungian analyst. And so he he came up with some some 
theories about what is this, what's going on. Well, a couple of things he noticed. One thing was that there was a pattern. If you listen to 50 of them, if you sat down and listened to 50 people diagnosed with schizophrenia, you'd see a pattern. Most of them believed they had been anointed by some powerful power to be involved in a battle between good and evil or God and the devil or communism and, right. and democracy. Um, uh, most of them had a sort of rebirth experience. Um, most of them, um, again, believed that they were involved in this very important uh, movement for a new world. And um, he came to see it as a reconstitution uh, of the self. He says, I think mm-hmm. essentially what is happening here, these are people, all these people who, who fall into this state of being have been hurt very badly. They've been made to feel yes. inadequate. They've been abused, neglected. They've been hurt, discounted, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this is their way of surviving, and it's a reconstitution of the self. It's a movement towards healing. And if we can help right. them go through it, they'll come out the other side. So anyway, right. he wrote a book called The Far Side of Madness. It's a terrific book. Terrific book. I'm going to put uh, down? He, he, the Far Side of Madness. Okay. Uh, anyway, so this woman... I just, you, you know, this woman that I got to know, she could be grounded and lucid when she was, when she needed to be. When she was in my room and feeling safe, right? She's feeling safe in my room. She she would say something like, and she said this, she says, you know, I was christened by the first pope. Well, I said, well, wait a second, the first pope lived 1,500 years ago. Oh, she said, no, I mean the, the pope now. I was christened by the pope now. Well, if I'd have, if I'd have known what I knew now, no, then if I'd have known then what I know now, I would have asked her. I said, I would have said, you know, um, India, you know, the, the Pope doesn't christen everybody. Uh, why does he christen you? And she would have told me, says, I'm important. The Pope cares about me. Right. I'm important. That's what she would have told. Because somebody me. had to care about her, and who yeah. better than the Pope? Yeah, yeah, and I and I've been de- devalued. I've been discounted. She had been horribly abused in every way you can imagine. Yeah. So, so I, I I wondered, you know. So here she now she can be important, being christened by the Pope. So I wondered why, what is she doing when she's saying this in my room? And I think one of the things she was doing was testing me. She was testing me. She yeah. was, let's see what Al's going to do. Is Al going to be with me here? Is he on my side? Or is Al going to say, I think you need to see a psychiatrist exactly. as soon as possible? Medicated, or is he going to say, "Oh, that's ridiculous"? You know, don't say and you that know, stuff. You know, Al, the proportion of people who are doing psychotherapy get scared out of their bejesus when this happens and actually oh, yeah. don't work. Oh yeah, you that's have to right. be medicated. You have to be medicated. That's exactly. And in fact, if you don't medicate and the person does something, commits suicide or whatever, and it comes out, you're going to be in big trouble. That's right. They're going to have That's to right. with, with, with exactly. knives and four. Yep. They will go after you big time because you're not practicing the standard of care. Right. Yeah. Tell you an interesting personal story. I was teaching, and what, I can remember when I first read exactly, you know, it's like where, where I remember where I was when Kennedy was, I learned that Kennedy was dead. And right. Assassinate. You know that you get those. You're frozen in time. I remember exactly right. where I was when I first read uh, Tom Zoss's The Myth of Mental Illness. Right. And I sat. I was waiting for a patient that was late. I was in my office, and it hit me. He's right. Right. And that mm-hmm. set me on asking, if it's not illness, then what is it? It took me a long time to mm. come up with this idea of adaptation. Right. 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 Uh, right. So I began when I taught. I taught for, for, for 36 years at a community college, and ultimately, I became the, the senior professor in the department, and I taught psych, the, the abnormal psychology course. I taught two or three a term. And what mm-hmm. I would do is bring the DSM in and read some of the diagnosis, take them through it, and I would teach them the difference between a judgment and a description and I would always start with oppositional defiant disorder and ask yeah. them, does this sound like medical or does it sound like politics? <laughs> right. These kids got it right away. 
I mean, they're right away. Right. So right. the reputation exactly. started to go around the school. And I had friends who were clinical psychologists who were also teaching. All of a sudden, they all turned against me and started telling mm-hmm. the students in their classes, don't take Simon for any courses. He's crazy. Yeah, yeah, you're really oh. amazing, huh? Yeah. Next thing oh, yeah. I find out, my ch- I get my schedule. This is almost before I retired. I get my schedule. There's no abnormal psychology on it. Mm. So I go to my mm-hmm. chairman. I said, what's this? I mean, I was friends with him for years. He says, well, right. the nursing department has threatened that if you teach abnormal psychology with this stuff, with this crazy ideas, then what's <laughs> going to happen is none of us are people who come up for tenure or promotion will be voted for by the nursing department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I said, did you ever hear of academic freedom? Yeah, in other words, you're folding on this? He says, I have to. Yeah, there it is. That's when I, that's there it the is. final, I put my papers in and I got out of there. This yeah, will happen to anybody. You know, Zoss yeah. was attacked. Oh, they yeah. They got him from upstate, uh, upstate New York, but they didn't get him, they didn't lose his, they couldn't get his license. So he yeah, yeah, at yeah, least they, they, earn a living on his on his uh, uh, patients, but also his books, which ultimately right. were tra- translated into twenty five different languages all over the world. Uh, he was right. able to live right. on the royalties of his books. Otherwise, he would have starved. Is that right? So they actually did fire him from the university, huh? He was no yes. longer at the university. And there was only one professor who stood with him, and that yeah, was, it was Ron Ernst. Leifer, I think. His name was no, Ron Ernst. Leifer, I think. Yeah. He taught Ron at Leifer Upstate? Just, I think so, yeah. I think I think he, he, he well, either he taught or he was a student or something. Anyway, Ron helped right. him, tried to help him. But, Ernst you know, they Becker, tried to take, who wrote The Denial of Death. I don't know, right. the 1974, that became a big bestseller. He stood with mm-hmm. him, too, but it didn't matter. They they, they took away, they, 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 they declared him that he was sick, he was crazy. And they took yeah. away his tenure, and they fired him. Yeah, well, you know, they tried to get Peter Bregan's uh, a license in Maryland, you know, when he was on the Oprah show. He got on the Oprah that show. I know. Yeah, they, he was on the Oprah show, and he said, hey, these drugs are bad. You know, I'm telling you, these drugs right. will hurt you, and they're not going to help you. They'll hurt you. And uh, they tried to take his license. And Anyway, um, you know what? Um, we you wanted to talk also about the the uh, the myth of uh, of uh, biological causes of, of mental illness. Um, can we do that another time? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, let me tell you about a few other survivors and what they've done. Okay, because this to me is the show, um, and and I think this is just absolutely important stuff. And by the way, this broadcast goes out all over the world. Yeah, all over great. the world. Yes, great. I love it. So maybe we'll start a uh, movement right here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, you know, this is what has to happen. The kind of thing we're doing, and and little by little, people getting it. You know, uh, right. this is how it's going to happen. I, I, uh, I think you saw the the thing I sent, uh, the, the the message I put uh, on the ICEP, uh, uh listserv. You know, a hopeful experience. So that woman here in Las Cruces who found right, out about right. Yeah, and read Robert Riddick's book. And, well, that's terrific. So I don't know. We could do different things. We can, whatever you want, Larry. I could tell you a little more about some other survivors and what they've done. Um, and people can look them up. Uh, we, can, we can talk more about schizophrenia, which is the big problem. You know, the, the horrible, uh, the, really the most horrible thing in the world is that today in this country and, and, and more and more in the world, uh, people who, who have fallen into this state of being, which actually is a move towards healing, which is right. a move towards healing and, yeah, I like to say, an adaptation, right. and what happens to them is they're immediately drugged, so their process is stopped, their movement towards healing is stopped, and they're forced to take a drug that's extremely toxic, and that's going to dumb them down, and as you know, you know what it does, right? I mean, it reduces dopamine in the brain. Well, it's right. dopamine is a really important neurotransmitter for creativity, for aliveness, for uh, a reward. For And, of course, we know that Parkinson's disease is caused by a deficiency of dopamine. 
Right, right. So what right. the hell? Is it any surprise that people take these drugs are going to develop Parkinson's disease? So this is what and happens in this, in this country. Yeah, so anyway. You know what I wanted to do, if you don't mind? Um, I, I had sent out uh, to the, the news, the um, ISIP, this, uh, um, and I had asked, uh, what's that, Patricia, what's her last name? Patricia Bowerly? Bowerly. Yeah, Bowerly. 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 I, yeah. You get this thing on, on the Internet. It's the, in this Sunday review, the lead article in the Sunday review is a thing called Can We Stop Suicides? By yeah. a psychiatrist named Moises Velasquez Manoff. All right? Mm-hmm. In it, let me just read a couple of things, because I want this on the air. I, could, I was so enraged by this that I really had trouble sleeping that night. Mm-hmm. And I kept yeah. Basically, he talks about the, the rise of suicide in the country. And there is an epidemic of suicide. More young people are committing suicide. Uh, more soldiers coming back from war are committing suicide. Old right. people uh, are committing suicide. And there's a sentence here that I have to read, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, no, the trend, he writes, most likely has social causes. Number one cause, lack of access to mental health care. <laughs> Economic, <laughs> you like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Economic yeah. stress, loneliness, and despair the opioid epidemic, and the difficulties facing small-town America. So he says it's social. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to talk about a patient who wanted to commit suicide, and they were given ketamine. Right. Right? And immediately Mm -hmm. the suicidal thought stopped. Mm -hmm. And the whole rest of the article talks about what a miracle drug ketamine is and how it can be used to stop suicide. And while the research is done to find a brand new drug to stop suicide. And I look Mm -hmm. at this and I say, and I'm going to use the word, what the fuck is he talking about? If you're talking about despair and loneliness, which are life conditions, and you can't stand your life anymore, overwhelmed with all kinds of problems. You're going to drop a pill, and that is all that could be discussed. It is as if there's no such thing as an existential crisis in human life. Right. The more I thought about it, is this article and the position it takes is totally dehumanizing to what we are. Oh, yeah. Totally dehumanizing. The calling of people, the calling of people bipolar, uh, uh, all of the, you know, there's now 500. When I came into the field, there were 25 diagnoses. There's now over 500. Right, right. And the thing that ultimately bothers me is that you and I continue to use those words, diagnosis and therapy. Mm-hmm. There has to be a revolution across the board that says we stop doing this and we allow people to be human in whatever shape and form they are. And if they need help and want help, because it can't be coercive, then we try to intercede in their lives and try to help them go through whatever that crisis is to some state of mind where they can live without fear and terror. Exactly. That's exactly. I went out of my mind. I feel better now that I. I mean, it's just exactly just horrendous. I don't want to be part of it. Yeah, well, one of the things that bothers me about you know the present state of the of mental health, you want to call it mental health treatment or whatever we're going to call it, uh, is that uh, there's there's this idea we need to get rid of the symptom right away. Right. Uh, We don't want to know what the symptom is about. We want to get right. rid of it. Wait a second. It's like you're saying, hey, the symptom is there for a reason. It's adaptive. It's meaningful. It has some meaning. 
it's By the potentially way, it's useful. We need to we need to spend some time looking at this. We need to we need to we, you can learn something from this. Whatever this state of being is that you're in, or behavior that we can learn something from this. This is your life. This is what right. what's happening in order for you to survive. This is what's happening in order for you to adapt to your situation to cope. Uh, Al, the idea that we should get rid of it is ridiculous. For, how many different reasons can there be for people to be in despair? Oh, 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 oh. so many. A million. Despair a isn't a symptom. It's a no. state of mind, as you keep saying, and I completely agree. When you come up with something that you're stuck in and you can't think through to find some reason not to despair. And by the yeah. way, there are many conditions I feel if you really want to commit suicide. Uh, I have a friend who uh, lives here six months in Florida and the rest of the time in, in, in uh, Canada. Canada just passed a law that says if you want to commit suicide, medical suicide, they, there's a six-month waiting period. You're going to be, uh, it has to be discussed. It has to be, you know, of, of, of what seems to be a valid reason so that on Monday you're in despair, but on Friday you might feel better. You can now exit your life. Right. Oregon yeah, has which I, I think it's, I mean, it's a good idea. I mean, I think it's a, it's some, it's, it's a choice that people will be able to make. So let me ask exactly. you this question. Uh, uh, I, I want to ask, let, let, let's think about this a little bit, Larry, a little bit. Uh, because it has to do with the article you just read. It has to do with that article. Okay, so you put this this, this person on ketamine, right? Uh, so how long is this person on ketamine? He, these are questions. And you, you, How long is this person on ketamine? And then what happens when they're taken off the ketamine? Um, and I, well, I don't know. They will <laughs> maybe, maybe what? Does this cure the conditions of the despair? No, it's definitely not going to cure the conditions of the despair. Uh, but I can hear someone. I can hear a psychiatrist. I can hear a psychiatrist saying this, saying, uh, "Well, you know, okay, no, it won't cure the. Uh, it won't cure the fundamental reason for why this person wants to kill himself or herself. It won't address that at all. It won't help this person learn how to live or learn how to cope or learn how to, uh, you know." love and express themselves right. more the way they want to and it won't do that but it will but it will but, but but it will it will keep them from killing themselves right now and maybe if if we take them off like 2 weeks from now maybe now they won't want to kill themselves maybe we can start helping them that's um, not this article okay well so this guys all in, in finding you, you know I, I think about people I've worked with over the years in despair Right. Um, yeah. For example, I had a, a guy I work with. I work with a lot of soldiers who came back from Vietnam. Wow. And by the okay. way, horrible number of cops who killed people in the line of duty. Yeah. And all of right. this killing was justified. However, I do believe because we're in, innately moral, we can't kill without being transformed by the experience. Right. Right. So this yeah. guy went to Vietnam, and like a lot of the guys who came back from Vietnam, they knew the war was being lost. They knew yeah. they were there under phony circumstances, and it really right. spun their head. Yep. So now with this feeling that, that he's there and he has to do this job, he was a helicopter gunship pilot. And he mm -hmm. described that the gunship would go over a village where it was believed the Viet Cong was. Yeah. And these ships would come over and fire a wall of bullets down. And what was there, a person or a pig or an animal or a house, was flattened. And you'd have some red stuff on the ground. Yeah. Right? And they came back, and all they did was get stoned out of their mind. Yeah. Right. right. Well, one day he got so stoned that he couldn't take his ship up. Couldn't, couldn't do it. So his buddy took it, and the buddy got killed when the ship got knocked down by a missile. Oh, wow. Right? Now, he sits there, and he says, who will forgive me for this? Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't want to live. Yeah. Now, you're going to yeah. give this guy ketamine? 
Yeah, right. What does that say to what we're saying about his protest, his despair about fighting a war he knew was a lie? Yeah. It shuts him up. Yeah, yeah. You know, see, and like Joe Tarantola was being interviewed about this, and he said, why do we call this an illness? This is a normal human reaction to to horror, to moral injury. You know, there's yes. this idea of moral injury that's that's developed. Uh, moral injury that, met, that mo- practically all of these soldiers in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, you, you know, are suffering from because they know basically you don't know you don't know who you're fighting, you don't know who the enemy is. Uh, you know that uh, uh, there may have been a reason for the you being there, but not anymore. Uh, uh, you know, so, so uh, but but here's. I want to say this to you, Larry, because this is one of the reasons, this is one of the things that makes it very difficult in terms of the language we use, okay? Okay. So um, we we have this term mental illness, right? Well, when, 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 I, was, uh, when I was severely depressed at age 25, if you define illness, if you define health as being able to function, right? Stick with me here for a moment. If you define, with you if you define health, okay. If you define health as being able to function, and then you define illness as not being able to function, I was ill in that sense. Right. I wasn't suffering from a disease. You know, it wasn't uh, caused by chemistry or by uh, by brain disorder or anything like that. But in the sense that I couldn't function, I was ill. So if we take PTSD, right? Oh, PTSD you're starting a, me on that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, so it's a totally normal, it's a totally normal response to horror. It's a normal response right. to horror. If a person wasn't horrified by this, we'd say they're, they're a fucking animal. There's something wrong with That's them. right. But right. it's debilitating, right? They get flashbacks. They, 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 can't, they can't function very well, you know. They can't they, resolve they get horror. They can't yeah. resolve what they've been doing and what they've seen. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're, you know, in this sense, you say, well, they're not functioning well. They, 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 there is, they are ill. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I don't know how we do it. How do we? No, no. We... But that's the point. Listen, in order to kill somebody, and I really believe this because I've worked with so many of the people this way. In order to kill somebody, you have to be able to dehumanize the person you killed. Right. But if right. you kill somebody Absolutely. that you feel was really a human being, it can't be resolved. So right. one thing you could say is anybody who goes to war and kills is sick. But right. then when they can't do it anymore, they're well. PTSD, <laughs> in other words, it, it debilitates the ability to fight war. Right. See, yeah, go no, back in history. Go right. back in history. There was a time where if a person could not kill anymore, they were called a coward and they were hung. Mm-hmm. Clear moral judgment. You have to be able to fight. In World War One, it was called shell shock. Right. Yeah. In World War Two, battle neurosis. And by the way, studies show, and this was a justifiable war. Within two months of combat, 98% of soldiers broke down, couldn't do it anymore. They had to mm, ship them out mm. and rotate it out. Okay. Right. So what was happening, if you want to look at it from that point of view, health was emerging by the inability to do this anymore. Right, right. This is a healthy response. You could say this is a healthy response. It's a healthy response, resp- but not healthy in any... It's a moral response. I can't yeah. do this anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a I human, can't look at the death reaction. It's, right. a, it's it, what's best in us. Yeah, it's a human reaction, right? Uh, well, you, 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 you may know this. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but you know, uh, they did a study in, in World War II. I don't know about World War I, but World War II, they found that a, uh, basically only 40% of American soldiers actually fired their weapons. Yes. Infantry, I mean. We're talking about yes, infantry, yes. right? Yes. Only 40% actually fired their weapons. 
So what they decided to do now is give them antidepressants. So they right. take away their, their their emotions. Right. Give the soldiers so that antidepressants they can do and so they then, take away their emotions. So yeah. Then they're going to be destroyed psychologically when they come off the pills, because then they're going to become right. human again. That's it. This is great. Yeah, Let's do this. I'm in over an hour, and I had a long yeah. day today, and I think okay, we've done yeah. a, a great piece. What I'm going to okay. do is ask anybody who's listening to this if they want to call in, okay? And maybe we okay. could get a couple of people and answer some questions, because okay. we, we've just gone through the looking glass there, Al. <laughs> we really are. Right. Right. We're in a very okay. different place. You see? So the guest yeah. call in for this show is 646-716-7756. And let's just give a couple of minutes. Maybe somebody wants to pop in. Okay. Um, I can't tell you how I thankful I am that we had this conversation. I thought this was just fantastic. Great. Larry, I enjoyed it, you know, and, and and it's great to get, by the way, it's great to get back together again with you. I think I told you that, you know, you're the first guy I talked to. You're the first uh, ICSPP person I ever talked to. And, uh, you know, I met you at the conference and we would talk. And I always, t- I tell people, I say, you know, one time you told me, say, Al, we were talking about psychotherapy. You said, Al, you're a true believer. And yes. you were right <laughs> about that. You were right about that. And then in the sense that I'm not open uh, to evidence that psychotherapy doesn't work. I'm not open. I'll look for reasons why that's not good research. I'm that kind of, that kind of true believer. I am. You're right about it. (laughs) But you told me that one time. Al, you're a true believer. Uh, I don't think you're a true believer anymore. Oh, okay. (laughs) You're living with doubt now about the very word mental illness. Oh yeah! Right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. See, to me, it's, it's, my book is going to be a, a way of talking about the, all this kind of stuff and suggesting. I can't even see the word I use for psychotherapy now is therapy in quotes. Psychotherapy in quotes. Okay. If we're dealing with metaphorical illnesses, it's metaphorical therapy. And I've been right. looking for another word. Yeah. And I can't come up with another word that is gives the, the, the meaning of what I want without using some kind of reference to the word therapy. Um, but let me tell you yeah. the title of the book it's called Stories We Live By, From Authoritarianism to Democracy, From Psychotherapy Without Quotes to Psychotherapy with Quotes. And I mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. need another word. I need, yeah. I need another I know. word. Well, I but think, anyway. you know, I think I think you're really you've identified uh, the problem. You've identified the problem. And the problem is that we're trying to deal with a human with a human issue uh, yes. in, a, in, in, in a medical model that doesn't work. Doesn't work. Um, it's destructive. It's, it's destructive. It's destructive. Uh, it ends up with this, like this article. The other thing I want to do is write to the editor. What editor read this and, and published it as the first article in, in the review? This, this is a totally dehumanizing article. Totally dehumanizing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, anyway. You know, I, uh, one of the things I've done is um, I, 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 put, I, I did a video. Actually, I did a presentation um, at the... I did it at two places. One, I did it at the Society for Humanistic Psychology conference, and I did it for one of the ICEP conferences. It's called uh-huh. We Need to Be Studying the Mind. We Need to Be Studying the Mind, Not the Brain. Right. And all of this interest in the brain uh, goes along with the problem that you're talking about. Um, if when a, person, when a person presents to you or me, right, uh, in a state of being or complaining of a state of being or behaviors that are upsetting uh, or that are dangerous or scary or whatever, right? We have a choice. We can intervene at the level of the brain with drugs or electroshock, or we can intervene at the level of the mind and the emotions, essentially with right. helping people learn how to use their minds and their emotions and their intentions, right. their perceptions, use them more effectively. 
Right. Um, right. Well, yeah, what, what's happening today is, you know, I was telling you about the the, uh, the National Institutes for Mental Health. The National Institute for Mental Health has a has an annual budget of one point three billion dollars. My guess is that they're wasting about seventy five percent of that on the brain, and on drugs right. and research right. having to do with drugs. That's criminal. That's criminal. Yes. Yes. See, what it is is that we're psychological beings. Yeah. And what the model suggests is that we somehow can reduce or ignore the psychological part of us and understand it purely in terms of physiological processes. Right. And that's ridiculous. It can't. It can't be reduced. Uh, it is. Okay. Yeah. You know, now, you, you know, one of the ways... Brain that, did, go ahead. Psychology. But the fact is, once we are able to think and imagine and create, that can't be reduced to the neurological activity because it it's about be. something in the world. Yeah. You so and I wouldn't be talking. Uh, uh, there's a guy named William Uttle who died about six months ago. He's a neuroscientist, okay? This guy is a neuroscientist, Arizona State University. He wrote a book called Brain and Mind, A Critique of Neuroscience. And what he says in the book, he says, you know, neuroscientists think they have a theory about how the brain creates the mind. They're not even close. Not they even are close. so far no. away from having any theory about how the right. brain creates the mind. They're not even close to it, and they never will be. He says they never will. Because in well, order you to know, Thomas understand... Nagel, the philosopher, yeah. Nagel says at the point at which we will understand how brain creates psychology, psychological, it will lead in a revolution in physics that will change the very understanding of the universe. Yeah, We're who, not who there. says this? Thomas Nagel. Thomas, oh, Nagel wrote a, Thomas Nagel wrote a paper, What's It Like to Be a Bat? Mm. And he said, it must be something to be a bat, but you and I will never know what it feels like to be a bat. And he, it's an incredibly fabulous article. Listen, I'm going to hang. There's no one coming on. Okay. I have a, I have some ice cream in the freezer that I want to eat. Sounds good. My wife wants <laughs> me to watch television with her. Okay, I'm and gonna I get thank to you eat again. Myself. Al, take yeah. care. Okay, good night. thanks, Larry. Thanks I, for doing this. And uh, tell everybody about this broadcast. I think this is one of the best things that that uh, I know I've done and you've done because this is this is we're really in a great place here. Terrific. It's great. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Take care, Larry. Bye.